Good morning. Thanks for choosing me. It would have hurt my feelings if you chose somebody else. You know that. So how many people have BUP waivers? They have to get a waiver to get your buprenorphine license, right? Uh, how many people are family physicians? And how many of those people have BUP waivers? Okay. Uh, what about psychiatrists? I know there's one back here somewhere. Nurse practitioners? Physicians assistants? Right? All of it are eligible for it. So we're going to have a talk about buprenorphine and the, the molecule for all seasons because we want to look at its potential for not just pain, but patients who have pain and substance use disorder. And anyone who's seen a patient who has pain and substance use disorder, they are extremely challenging. And I think we've oversold buprenorphine as it's this really, really safe molecule. And I'm going to point out some facts that might open your eyes. So I have no conflict of interest, which is why I drive an old Subaru. So if anyone has a conflict of interest, I'll be sitting right over there after the talk. It's true, I have an old Subaru. So let's start off with um, the learning objectives is to describe three different indications for the use of buprenorphine in patients with chronic non-malignant pain, and then kind of explain the anti-suicide mechanism, because it's a really evolving field about buprenorphine, the treatment of depression and suicide. So let's start with a question. A 39-year-old male presents to your clinic with a history of debilitating chronic low back pain and had been on long-term opioid therapy, OxyIR 10Q8, and he admits he's been misusing his opiates by escalating his dose as his pain is poorly controlled. He didn't have a lot of indications for opioid use disorder, but so he was really abusing the medications or misusing it for um, uh, pain control. You decide to transition him to a buprenorphine product. The best buprenorphine product in this case would be A, buprenorphine naloxone film, B, buprenorphine sublingual tablet, C, buprenorphine transdermal patch, or D, buprenorphine extended release injection. How many people say A? How many say B? How many say C? And D? Okay. The right answer is buprenorphine transdermal patch. It doesn't meet criteria for an opioid use disorder. It would be more, more effective for pain control, and also it's a you know, once-a-week patch, so it has a very low liability for abuse. Question, of all the subtypes of opioid analgesics, buprenorphine is the least misused. How many say true? How many say false? You know, smart audience. It's actually false. Right? Because people, again, that's one of the kind of uh, illusions about uh, buprenorphine that it's such a safe molecule, and I'll present some data later. Buprenorphine has been demonstrated to reduce suicidal ideation. It is postulated that the anti-suicide effect is related to activation of which receptor? How many say delta? How many say kappa? Mu or ORL, ORL1? Okay, it's the kappa and we'll talk more about that. You're waving your hand because you like kappa? That's the unicorn, right? That's going to be the new analgesic that's going to be the unicorn that's going to solve all of our problems. Yeah. Okay, so back, this is um, our objective is to look at the opioid crisis, pain and substance use disorders, managing pain in the patient with a substance use disorder, pain, substance abuse, and suicide, and then kind of bring it home. So I know we've been beating this dead horse, resurrecting it, and beating it again to death. But we're going to look at, look at the opioid crisis. Let's look at some of the data. So over the past several decades, opioid analgesics were promoted as a key component of effective pain management, right, for both acute and chronic non-malignant pain. That was the standard of care. 
Back in the 80s and 90s, even in the 2000s, you were a bad clinician if you didn't give people a Pez dispenser with oxycodone for their carpal tunnel release, right? Right? You were, you were not a good clinician. Fifth vital sign, everyone has to be on opiates, you know, and so that was kind of really pushed. This resulted in an exponential increase in opioid prescribing. There was a four-fold increase in the sales of prescription opioid analgesics from 99 to 2010. Pretty significant. A subgroup of patients do well on opiates. I'll say it again. And this, again, is now the current model is if you prescribe opiates, you're a bad clinician, right? You can't win. So we should use everything except opiates. But if you select the right patient in the right, and have with the lower risk, and they failed other non-opioid therapies, some people can be managed very effectively. However, there is an increasing risk of morbidity and mortality. In 2013, 4.5 million persons uh, 12 or older were current non-medical users of pain relievers. 1.9 million were dependent or abused pain relievers, and only marijuana, uh, which is legal. Where's my friend from Colorado? The, not, the illicit marijuana uh, was higher. Um, in 2013, 746,000 people required treatment for non-medical use of prescription opioid relievers. What about overdoses? This is a big area, a big concern in, in, in NIDA and the NIH is to avoid uh, or decrease um, uh, overdoses on opiates. So if you look at age-adjusted opioid poisoning deaths, they quadrupled from 99 to 2011. 2016, there were 63,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States. And if you look at how many were related to opiate, it was about 66% or 44,000 were opioid-related. So if you look at this, sort of, this is a classic slide that shows everybody. You look at the overall death rate from opiates and how any opiates has gone up. Uh, commonly prescribed opiates has kind of stabilized a little bit. Heroin's gone up, and then other synthetic ones. The biggest ones are fentanyl. Now, I have to say that you have to look at data very carefully because most of this data is bastardized. So if you looked at this as a clinician, would you ever give your patient an opiate ever? No. But this data is mostly non-medical users, and people don't push that out enough because we want to vilify opiates. I'll give you, I was giving a talk at the American Geriatric Society in Portland a few months ago, and I, it was the pro and cons of opiates. And guess what I got? I got the pro. <laughs> So I'm sitting in front of these 300 geriatricians, and I said, you know, the pros and cons of opiates in this climate is like the pros and cons of Trump. <laughs> half the people laughed, the other half didn't, and I kind of walked away from that <laughs> group. But my, 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 uh, my colleague, who is from uh, another university, who's really anti-opiates, you know, uh, had, and had, he had all this data from the VA where they look at 500,000 people. And you can make anything look statistically significant with 500,000 people. And it's all association. It's not causal. So the data is sometimes very difficult to kind of to look through. So let's look at the risk factors for overdose. They're very specific. High dosing of opiates is a, high, a risk factor, and I'll show you some data later. Uh, prescribing methadone, which has a variable half-life. Remember, it's analgesia. It's four to six hours, but it stays in your system for 72 hours. So people who want to get a high and they take more uh, methadone are going to end up dead. History of aberrant drug-related behaviors, which are not necessarily um, indicative of an opioid use disorder. Co-occurring and prescribed benzos. You know, again, that's been a big thing and probably one of the only things in the CDC that made sense. No offense. <laughs> a recent history of substance use disorder of any kind and significant psychiatric comorbidities. So if you're looking at these factors, and I would also add obstructive sleep apnea, you know, as another big risk factor for overdose. So again, these are the things you need to look out when you're seeing patients who are on opiates. 
What about pain and prescription opioid abuse? We know that pain is very complex. Anyone who takes care of a chronic pain patient, if someone has chronic pain and they don't have like five of these, I tell them they're in the wrong clinic. You know, you must, you must want the dentist down the hall. They have sleep disturbance, and we know that sleep disturbance drives up pain by causing the release of interleukin-6, which is a pro-inflammatory, decreases tolerance and contributes to depression and anxiety. Depression, anxiety, substance misuse and abuse. Secondary medical problems, patients stop moving, they gain weight, they develop hypertension, diabetes, OSA, uh, functional disabilities and cognitive distortions. This is the typical patient that any of us who take care of chronic pain patients see. Why did we get where we are in terms of the opioid crisis? By the way, I will never use the word epidemic. Zika virus is an epidemic. You know, this is a crisis because it's a confluence of not training clinicians in substance abuse or pain management during their training, insurance companies that won't pay for non-opioid therapies. We blame the patient and we blame the clinicians when it really should be a, a top-down reformation. But how did we get here? So we developed for numerous reasons. So it was a unimational, unimodal approach to pain treatment, right? Focus of the pharmaceutical injuries was pushed, you know, that this is a safe. I remember a salesman who was, um, was pushing OxyContin extended release when it came out said, this is a really low liability for addiction. And I said, do you know what oxycodone is? And he goes, but we put talc in it, so it's an abuse deterrent. And I said, anyway, so it really pushed this as very safe. And again, the model was it's sort of end-of-life care kind of extrapolated to non-malignant pain, right? And as Doug Gourlay says, it takes 30 seconds to say yes and 30 minutes to say no. So if you're in a busy practice and you're 10 patients behind and the patient says, oh, by the way, I need a, a refill of the Percodoodles, and they go like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that and see you next time. So again, it became very easy to give opiates. And again, you were considered a good clinician, a good person, a person of God if you gave opiates to everybody. But what we saw was a tremendous increase in opioid misuse, abuse, and overdoses. Now, part of, the, part of the problem with the data here is terms. So misuse is using a substance as medically indicated, but not as prescribed. So they're taking two Percocets a day. They add a third one for pain control. That's misuse. I don't know why I just keep doing this. Abuse is using a drug for what is not intended. So if a pain patient is using it to induce sleep, what's this timing? Really, I don't have tremors. Um, uh, if they're using it to induce sleep, or if they're using it, anyway, uh, if they're using it to induce sleep, you know, that's abuse. If they're using it, for, it opiates are strong axiolytics. Patients take it for anxiety, right? Um, they take it for, it's a hedonic effect. Before 1950, we used opium for the treatment of melancholia, for depression, until they, uh, until they developed tricyclics and monoamine uh, or MAO inhibitors. So it was actually people take it because it makes them feel better, it makes them feel less anxious, depressed. That's all abuse. Or euphoria. D diversion is very different. Diversion is that the person's on public assistance and they drive a new BMW, right? <laughs> They're using it for some other gain. Dependency is that physical neuromodulation uh, uh, that occurs. I don't, this thing keeps a, um, and substance use disorder is the four C's, impaired control of use, compulsive use in spite of harm, continued use despite physical, emotional, social difficulties, and craving for non-pain relief. It's the four C's that define what addiction is. So here's our next question. What percentage of patients prescribe opiates develop an opioid use disorder? 
How many people say 10% or less? 20%, 30%, greater than 30%. Who doesn't really care? <laughs> so most people think it's about 30 to 40% of legitimate patients that are exposed to opiates. So now it won't move, here we go. So this is a great article by Nora Balkal, who's the head of NIDA at the NIH, and Tom McCullen, who is a lifelong addiction. And Dr. Nolkow, uh, Nor Nor Volkow came out with a very strong statement. This is the misconceptions and mitigates a great article from the New England Journal of Medicine. Addiction occurs in only a small percentage of persons who are exposed to opiates, even among those with pre-existing vulnerabilities. This is a study we did, uh, I think we did in 2018. We took 180 patients who were starting opiates in family practice, um, and they were excluded from having severe psychiatric comorbidities, and they were excluded if they had a recent history of substance abuse. Only 5% after one year of following them had any aberrant behavior. So if you look at the data, well-documented well data, it's about 8%. So who said 10% who said or less? You get another sticker whether they're giving it out there. Now, a lot engage in aberrant behaviors, but that's not a surrogate for an opioid use disorder. You know, they, they're, having, they're poor pain control, so they're taking more than they should. They're calling all the time, wanting more opiates. So it's about 8 to 10%. How many people in this, across all populations have a cocaine use disorder? 8 to 10%. How many have an alcohol use disorder? 8 to 10%. These are people who pick their parents poorly, you know, and their brain is wired for this. So we, the patients have been vilified because they say, look, at there's 30, 40, 50% of these people, you know, develop a use disorder. It's just not accurate. So how do we manage pain in a patient with an opioid use disorder? Because this is where it gets real complex, right? How do we help these people that have these comorbidities? Well, obviously, it has to be a multimodal approach, right? And even with just chronic pain in itself, it's not going to be solved with an epidural or a spinal cord stimulator or a round of physical therapy. It has to be multimodal, and you have to treat all facets of the pain syndrome. So we know what happens when someone has a use disorder and also chronic pain is that they, that creates added anxiety, depression, disability, you know, both socially and economically, which leads to relapse. And these patients get caught in this cycle. And again, we need to treat all parts of these bubbles here. And we know this is a, a, a one from Lynn Webster. We know that in the, in the substance abuse literature, as stress goes up, what happens? Relapse rate goes up, right? So managing these comorbidities are very important. So here's a lot of psychosocial and CAM interventions that have been around for a long time um, that help with, with pain that are non-opiate, acupuncture, neurofeedback, CBT, physical therapy, massage, et cetera. Everyone's familiar with the CDC guidelines, right, for opiates. I love the one is that you should not use an opiate unless you've tried acupuncture, CBT, physical therapy, hot rock massage, whatever. <laughs> I practice in West Philadelphia, which is a poor area, Nobody has access to any of that. I don't practice in Beverly Hills. So to say that you have to have all these things, how many, anyone here is a psychologist, social worker, right, anyone? So we, we get paid a lot, don't we, you know, for doing this. So again, we're not paying for non-opioid therapies, but some of these things are extremely helpful. And we're really going to focus on the three that I think we have most value is the CBT, physical therapy, and 12-step programs. It is interesting thing about exercise. Anyone went exercising today? Okay. What did it do for you? Yeah. 
So I was, I was giving a lecture to a bunch of internal medicine residents, and it, was not, it has nothing to do with what she asked. And she goes, I have a question. You know, and she said it just like that. And I said, what is it? I said, how do you get people to stop smoking? I'm sitting there going, and she looked fit, so I figured she, I said, do you, do you exercise? She goes, yeah, I run every day. And I said, well, why do you run every day? Because it makes me feel better. I said, you don't do it for cardiovascular health or anything else. So again, why do people change? Because it does something else for them. Exercise is really interesting because we know that it enhances the release of endogenous. You, you're my, she, was, she was not planted here, honestly. But she had euphoria out of it, right? We also know that it shows that it's a strong axiolytic. So I live in Philadelphia, and I walk. To get to the campus is about three and a half miles, so I walk there and walk back because it just kind of revs me up for the day and then calms me down at night. So again, we know exercise has this really important effect in managing anxiety, sleep, and it also it has hedonic properties, so it actually helps with depression. So this is a very low-hanging fruit if you can get people to do it. That's the big key. Physical therapy. How many people send patients with chronic pain to physical therapy? And how many times do they come back and say, it helps me? It hurt me. You know, it made me feel bad. Because most physical therapists are not trained to manage chronic pain. You know, they like rehabbing knees. I mean, it's, I've run pain clinics for my whole career, and it's really hard to find a physical therapy that has a passion for this. So when we, our physical therapists take, we have, we have stuffed turtles in our gym. It's a tortoise and the hare, slow and easy. We only meet with them once a week. It's one-on-one -on -one for an hour because pain patients feel vilified, right? And, they, and the typical physical therapy is 15 minutes, the therapist does something else, 15 minutes stretching and comes back, and the patients just don't feel connected. So it's acquiring first aid skills. Okay, you have back problems, it starts to flare. Rather than going to the emergency room, just unload your spine, put your feet up on the couch, right? TENS unit, how to use cold and ice. Because these patients need to build confidence in themselves to manage their pain, right? Establish a well-balanced exercise program that should be very, very slow so that they're not blown out of the water. Cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance commitment therapy. Been around forever. Patients with pain do two things. Pain catastrophizing, which is, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, the pain is going to overwhelm me. Maladaptive thinking and maladaptive behavior, which is a kinesiophobia, fear of movement. So cognitive behavioral therapy just boils down to sort of having the patient reconceptualize the pain, their role in healing, getting to be proactive rather than reactive with specific skills like mindfulness-based stress reduction, cognitive restructuring, uh, assertiveness training, followed by relapse rehearsal, relapse training, and kind of a very systematic way. We know that there's pretty robust literature that's been extremely effective along many different pain conditions. Arthritis, sickle cell disease, chronic low back pain, TMJ, lupus, and even pain in breast cancer patients. We just put a grant in looking at the chronification of pain, and it's interesting, people who are undergoing a total knee arthroplasty have a really high prevalence of developing severe chronic pain. So we're doing an intervention where preoperatively for a month, we're going to give them a, a canned computerized um, CBT program along with motivational interviewing to kind of lower their opioid use because we know that opiates are another risk factor for chronification. So we're using CBT a lot more because, again, the hard part is getting therapists that can actually do CBT pain. I mean, I live in Pennsylvania, and I think I'm one of four pain psychologists in the tri-state area, which is New Jersey, Delaware, and Philadelphia. So I'm hypo hypomanic, but not that hypomanic. So there's lots of efficacy. And what in cognitive therapy, basically what you're doing is you're reducing 
not pain, but sort of reducing their suffering, right? It's, it's you're targeting function and mood, because that really is the crux of quality of life. Acceptance commitment therapy, if anyone went to the talk the other day uh, about acceptance, it's a kind of a variation of it, but it's really a form of CBT that is directive and experiential rather than sort of guided by these specific skills. It's really based on sort of that mindfulness kind of a, a process, and there's core parts of it like content, contact with the present moment, which is a mindfulness, self as context, diffusion, acceptance, values, and committed action. Really robust literature on this also. This is one study done, 171 patients with chronic musculoskeletal disorder completed a really brief course of ACT. Three years later, 68% of the cohort noted continued improvement in pain, anxiety, physical, and social disability. Is there any molecule out there that gets that kind of response three years later? I don't think so. Again, part of the problem is, is getting patients to accept doing this because people have a whole stigma about mental health and behavioral health. So again, there are non-opioid types of interventions that could be really helpful with a patient who has pain, and particularly pain and substance use disorder. This is a study that was done looking at um, ACT for actually treating substance use disorders and compared it to regular CBT, regular mindfulness-based stress reduction. And by far, it was the most effective in re reducing relapse and reducing um, uh, any other su related substance use disorder symptoms. So 12-step programs have been around for a long time, developed in 1935, with the original program being uh, that for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, their goals are to maintain sobriety, reinforce abstinence. There's very little data because we, we can't do randomized controlled trials on this. But I think the crux of how it helps people is really social support because that's another factor that mitigates relapse and patient having uh, further problems. Now, interestingly, some of these programs are zealots about abstinence at all costs, not even using medication-assisted therapy. So another funny story. <laughs> I was giving a talk at a private chemical dependency program in Pennsylvania, and it's very abstinence-based. And I, I talked about these other non-opioid therapies, and then I talked about buprenorphine and methadone. So this physician in the audience came up to me, and I was talking to a vice president, and he said, I can't believe you let him talk about medication-assisted therapy. So because I'm not very smart, I said, what kind of doctor are you? He says, I'm an internist. I said, do you think that, that addiction is a disease? He, he said, absolutely. And I said, you can't have it both ways, Sparky. You can't call it a disease and not treat it with every factors. So the, 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 this model has been evolving because we know that abstinence doesn't work for a good group of patients because, again, they're, they have the brain of an addict. You know, They have someone who's they're going to relapse and relapse and relapse. I had a patient started his abuse at age five, you know, started selling, uh, stealing cigarettes from his father, got beat the hell out of him. So he said, quote, I learned how to lie from then on. Uh, nine, he started smoking uh, almost every day. By high school, he had mar added marijuana. And he vacillated between alcohol, marijuana, then he got injured, and then the opiates came on board. And this guy was totally committed to 12 steps, which I think helped him emotionally, but biologically, he was kept relapsing. He got a job as, at the oldest brewery in the country, which is Yingling Brewery in Pennsylvania. And he said it's the best job for an addict because they give you free beer. <laughs> Only my patient would find a job that gives you free access to beer. But he kept relapsing and relapsing and relapsing. So he got a new granddaughter. And he said, this is it. I am not going to go back. I'm going to do more meetings, more meetings. And I think meetings are very important, so I'm not putting that down. But this is someone who could not do this. So he said, I said, okay. 
I get a call from, the, from him at the, from the hospital. I said, what do you do in the hospital? He goes, well, I shot myself in the knee. I said, how'd you do that? Well, he goes, well, I got drunk, and I was, something was stuck in the barrel, which was a bullet, by the way. He got, he got admitted, he got admitted, and he went through DTs in the hospital. I said, we are done with this. AA, I want you to do AA all the time, but you were going to get, so we got an extended release now Trexone, which blocks both opiates and alcohol, and has been clean for seven years and didn't lose his life. So again, it's, this is a very important part of it, um, but it's not all of it. So 12 steps were kind of evolved to add a Narcotics Anonymous. And again, abstinence does promote long-term outcomes in some patients, but there's a subgroup of people that really need that medication. This is a study done by Dunbar and Katz, which always ticks me off because this is really cited by everything. All my articles together are not cited as much, and they, they had 20 patients in this. Essentially, these were patients who had a history of substance abuse that were maintained on opiates for a year, and they looked at ones who abused the opiates and ones that didn't. The ones who didn't abuse it were active members in AA, had good social support. The ones who didn't um, do well and, and, again, abused the opiates were ones that did not go to AA, that had minimal social support, and also had a, a history of opioid use. So social support is really critical. A lot of my patients, I say, I will not treat you unless you do something. You need to get out of the house. You need to be around people and get social support and purpose. What about pharmacotherapy? Again, these are patients who have pain and a substance use disorder. So pain 101. Opiates are not indicated as first-line therapy for any chronic pain disorder that's not cancer-related, right? So there's non-steroidals. There's acetaminophen, muscle relaxants with caution, um, antidepressants, anti-epileptics, and lidocaine patches. There's lots of different avenues we can approach this patient in managing their pain. We all know that some of these have problems, too. Shoving non-steroidals at high doses is going to result in what? Death. Right? So again, you have to be cautious with all of these, but we do have opportunities. All the guidelines for neuropathic pain, you use anti-epileptic drugs. You know, fibromyalgia, you use AEDs and SNRIs. I mean, there's lots of different options here, and it's just finding the combination that works for the patient. Now let's move on to medication-assisted therapy. We really have three different molecules, methadone, buprenorphine, and extended-release naltrexone. So let's take each one of these. Is MAT effective? So the data will tell you that patients who are on medication-assisted therapy have improvement in patient survival in terms of overdoses, increased retention in treatment. They tend to do better and stay in treatment because treating addiction should not just be giving them uh, the buprenorphine or methadone. They need all the psychosocial support, too. Um, a decrease in illicit opioid use, decrease in criminal activity, increase in the patient's ability to gain and maintain employment, improved birth outcomes among women who have an opioid use disorder and pregnant, and lower risk of, of contracting HIV or hepatitis C by reducing the potential for relapse. So there's lots of positive things that happen with medication-assisted therapy. So here's kind of breaks down the three. So there's the full agonist, you know, which is methadone, the partial agonist, which is buprenorphine, and the non-agonist, which is naltrexone. And we'll talk about the usefulness of each one of these medications. So methadone's been around for a long time. Do you know who developed methadone? Germany in World War II because it was a replacement for, morph for morphine. When they lost the war, they had to sell it for $1 to Eli Lilly, which is what happens when you try to take over the world. <laughs> Things happen not in your favor. 
Interestingly, you know, people who know methadone, you know, it is effective for pain conditions because it blocks at the NMDA and monoamine reuptake, which helps the neuropathic pain. No opiates help neuropathic pain except methadone. Pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics are a little bit tricky, as we talked about. You know, analgesia peaks at four to six hours, but it stays in your system 72 hours. So again, there's a lot of you know, side effects and downsides. You know, when people are using methadone for strictly pain, and a lot of these Medicaid you know, populations that Medicaid insurer says you have to use methadone before you go to a long-acting opiate, and a lot of people who prescribe it don't understand the pharmacokinetics of it. Um, the receptor blocking activity, again, may be a reason for efficacy in neuropathic pain. And patients who are on methadone, methadone maintenance treatment for OUD and have pain are going to need a lot higher dosing, which, again, gets a little tricky. That won't move at all. Okay. Buprenorphine, developed in 1985 as an injectable analgesic. Uh, it's a partial opioid agonist that's ceiling effects to opioid effects, which helps reduce respiratory depression. Uh, dose daily to weekly. Uh, there's take-home doses allowed without a time and treatment requirements. So if you're in a methadone clinic, you have to come every day and get dosed every day. After you've had enough time in the clinic, you can have some take-home uh, medications. Uh, risk for precipitated withdrawal if first dose is too pre prematurely um, after recent of opiates. So to start buprenorphine, as you all know, you have to stop opiates first. So they're going to have some withdrawals. You can switch from methadone to buprenorphine. And studies indicate that buprenorphine is effective as a moderate doses, as, as, as effective as moderate doses of, of, of methadone. Those with high levels of physical dependency probably do better with methadone in general. So what about extended release and oral naltrexone? Again, um, it's an injectable suspension, effective for treatment of opioid and alcohol. The example of my patient who was a poly substance abuser it really needed something like naltrexone because alcohol was just as, uh, as, a, as a, um, seducing as opiates are. It's effective for um, low-dose naltrexone. is now being used for, like, fibromyalgia, thinking that it blocks the opioid, occupies the opioid receptors, so you sort of promote this endogenous. I have a patient who had a central pain syndrome. He had a thalamic stroke and had this burning facial pain, and actually naltrexone really helped him more than anything. So again, it has its usefulness in, in chronic pain and for patients who have opiate and alcohol problems. Buprenorphine formulations, there's a sublingual, which is compounded with naloxone to detect, uh, to deter abuse. Uh, newer formulations are out that have greater bioavailability. Average daily dose is 8 to 12 milligrams per day. Uh, the implantable one, uh, which is kind of like a Norplant they used, uh, again, um, it's interesting. <laughs> Patients come in, they have a big, like they try to cut it out of their arm. <laughs> if you give them Suboxone, they just don't take it. I actually had a patient that had sutures, and they tried to cut out the implant. Some people. And it's not been very effective, and they've had complications with it. What's new on the line is the injectable buprenorphine, which lasts for a month. So a lot of patients, I've been trying to push our health system. We have patients that come in, IV heroin users, and they develop cardiomyopathy, and they have to come in and get a valve replacement. And then they leave the hospital, start injecting again, and just have to come back in, which costs the hospital. So I said to the hospital, why don't we give them an inject, you know, the injectable buprenorphine? That will give you a month window to get them engaged in treatment. How much does that cost? It's about $1,500. Who's going to pay for it? You know, these, these are the struggles. Well, who's going to pay for that readmission that costs $50,000? You know, but it really is very helpful. Again, the problem is getting it paid for. So this is one looking at buprenorphine naloxone therapy and pain management. And again, what they found is it was, fairly, it was fairly effective with patients who had pain and a substance use disorder. 
less effective for people who just had a, a pain condition. You know, so it's, um, again, it has people have been pushing it as the new analgesic, even for non-opioid use disorder patients. And again, there is some analgesic efficacy to it, but not as strong as full agonists. So about uh, buprenorphine formulations for pain, there's the buccal uh, buprenorphine, which is kind of a newer formulation that's available as a buccal film indicator for management of pain requiring around-the-clock long-term opioid therapy. The buprenorphine transdermal delivery system, much lower dosing. So when you're using it for pain, they're going to have less analgesia than with with the uh, buccal one. And again, they've been very effective. This is a study looking at the analysis of abuse and diversion of buprenorphine transdermal compassion. They compared it to fentanyl, tramadol, and other forms of, of buprenorphine, and they found, looking at radar data, that it was far less abused than all the other opiates. Because it's hard to abuse. It's a small patch. You do it for, for a week. You can't, it's not like fentanyl, like you can carve out the fentanyl. And again, you just have, I had a patient who had a horrible alcohol use disorder in CRPS, and this, this was just magical for her. It gave her enough pain relief to do other therapies, and she wasn't going to be put in harm's way. What about buprenorphine dispensing? How long has it been around? So the Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000 came out, which a, a qualified U.S. physicians were able to offer buprenorphine for opioid use disorders in a variety of different clinics. Family practice, not that orthopedics would do it. Uh, even the emergency room was starting to use it. Uh, Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act in 2016 extended the privileges to nurses and PAs. Where, where are my nurse practitioners? So you had to do 24 hours, right? Uh, how redundant was it? Redundant was it? <laughs> Pretty redundant. So if you're a physician, if you're an MDDO, you have an eight-hour waiver. And if you're a, a, a nurse practitioner or a, a, a PA, it's 24 hours. And that was kind of mandated. This is a hard one to look at, but actually this looks at insurance coverage for all these buprenorphine products and methadone and naltrexone. And again, like they look at the top one, about 80% is covered by insurance. If you drop down to the injectable, I think it's like 10% because it's very expensive. So insurance companies are coming on board that buprenorphine can be very effective in treating these very refractory patients, which is going to reduce costs and healthcare costs because they're not going to be readmitted for other medical problems. They won't be in motor vehicle accidents. So again, that is really shifting that buprenorphine is being accepted even by the insurance industry. Now this is a, a, a slide I added last night. And this is really fun. This is really interesting. This is from SAMHSA 2018 data looking at the increase in the number of individuals receiving pharmacotherapy for opioid use disorder. And there's been a consistent increase for methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone across the board. So again, I think people are recognizing that the disease of addiction is real and that we should treat it as a real disease. Another funny story. I was giving a talk at OBGY. If you're old enough, you have all kinds of stories. And this is kind of, again, patients who have pain and patients who have substance use disorders are really vilified. You know, it's not a real disease. You're just morally corrupt. You weren't breastfed enough as a child, whatever. So this, I was giving a talk to a bunch of OBGYNs about addiction and pregnancy, nothing about pain. And this OBGYN raised her hand and said, how can I be empathetic when a mother comes in who's abusing, abusing drugs and it's affecting fetal development? I said, huh, what if she came in and she was a poorly, poorly controlled diabetic that was affecting fetal development? She goes, that's a completely different story. And I said, and there's still that attitude. That was a year ago, right? So we have this attitude like, let them die. You know, like they're bringing it on themselves. And we know that that's not true. 
addiction is a brain disease, like pain is a, chronic pain is a brain disease. So again, I think there's a shift now that we're starting to see these molecules being more effective, and we need to have better education. Of those who went to medical school, how many hours in pain medicine did you get? How many in addiction medicine? Zero. Our nurses and PAs, how many in pain? Zero. You got a couple. How about addiction? Zero. Who prescribes most of the opiates? Family doctors, you know? So again, it's an educational issue. So let's look at the contrast of BUP versus methadone maintenance therapy and naltrexone. So if you look at the, at the pros and cons, patients with chronic pain and OUD on methadone maintenance require higher dosing. Higher dosings are going to lead to lots of adverse effects. All opiates cause what? Sleep deprivation, immunosuppression, uh, androgen deficiency, puritis. So it's the higher the dose, the higher you're going to have more adverse effects. Uh, MMT needs to be provided at a methadone clinic, and buprenorphine therapy can be office-based with a waiver. So again, a lot of my patients who would do well in a methadone clinic, they're all filled. You can't get them in, right? So this is, allows us to have more people providing this molecule that can help people with opioid use disorders. The partial agonist agent has a lower potential for respiratory depression, right, which we are, is always a concern with these patients. Uh, buprenorphine sublingual has street value, whereas methadone isn't. So we have a, one of our emergency room physicians who's really gung-ho about buprenorphine, got her waiver, and someone comes in with a heroin overdose. She discharges them with three days of Suboxone. And I said, you know they're going to go out and sell that for more heroin. She said, no, 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 no. We had to talk about it. <laughs> I don't make this stuff up, really. And I said, they're going to go sell it for heroin. It has a street value. It doesn't cause much euphoria, but it helps people with withdrawals. So it has a street value. Um, uh, naltrexone is, is efficacious in managing that polysubstance abuse, but it's not effective in managing most pain conditions. So again, this is kind of the pros and cons of all of these. And this is just a diagram looking at respiratory depression, and you have a much lower chance of respiratory depression with a partial agonist. Now, misuse of prescription opioid subtypes. Is anyone surprised by this? Buprenorphine is the hit list in terms of what's misused above all of them, oxy, morphine, anything. So again, I think people are pushing this as this really, really safe drug. It has lots of, 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 of side effects, and it has lots of uh, abuse problems that are really not uh, mentioned. Now let's take back and look at pain, mood, and anxiety disorders. And this is an older study, but I think it's a very uh, effective study. They looked at 5,000 patients, and they completed this extensive psychiatric evaluation. And what they found is across the board, patients with chronic pain were significantly had a higher prevalence of all mood disorders, all anxiety disorders, as compared to the general population. These patients come in with anxiety and depression, right, which is going to drive their pain, their suffering, and perhaps increase their risk of relapse. This is a newer study looking at... Um, this is a newer study looking at psychiatric disorders. These were patients, 170 patients were admitted to a program that treated patients with pain and substance use disorders. And what they found is lifetime comorbid anxious one disorders was 91% in this population. 52% met criteria for lifetime anxiety disorders. 57% lifetime mood disorders. 78% for lifetime non-opioid substance use disorders. 
uh, current anxiety associates were PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder, and about 52% had an access to um, a personality disorder. So again, these patients come in with all of these different problems. This is a results from a, a long-term open-label extension study of adjunctive buprenorphine, and they they can they can. So if you give buprenorphine, it does have a hedonic effect, but because of the abuse liability, it's, people are very concerned about using it for just a depression. This is just for depression. So they added uh, SAM, which is a mu opioid receptor agonist to it. And what they found, this is actually done by a colleague of mine at Penn, at, uh, Dr. Thais, and this is pretty new, 2019 this year. So what they found is this combination of bup and SAM have, was demonstrated to significantly improve mood in patients with a refractory depression. And again, pain modulation wasn't measured in this. So buprenorphine does have some really positive antidepressant effects. Now let's get really happy at the end of this talk. Pain, substance use disorders, and suicide. I got interested in suicide because I thought we were missing the boat here. I really thought that we were so concerned about everyone getting addicted that we weren't looking at these as brittle individuals who were walking on the edge. In the VA, since they've been tapering everybody off opiates, even good patients, 9% increase in, in completed suicides. You know? So I got interested in this actually in 2011 because I kept thinking, like, see these patients, and they, you know, there's something going on here, and, and, and the suicidal ideation. And when someone comes into the, into the ED with an overdose, they assume it's unintentional. They, were, they just mismanaged their heroin or the opiates. But if you look at the literature, it's very robust. That, that there's a high prevalence of suicidal ideation in patients ranging from 18% to 50%. Nicole Tang, who's a colleague of mine at the University of Warwick, did a, a systematic review and found that, that, that risk of successful suicide was doubled in patients with pain compared to the general population. Is anyone surprised by that? So again, these are brittle people that have had physical and psychological social problems. What about suicidal ideation and behavior? 40% of patients that seek treatment have endorse having suicidal ideation. And in most methadone clinics, if you tell them that you have suicidal thoughts, they will not admit you into treatment, which is uh, abhorrent to me. If you have an alcohol use disorder, you are 10 times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. If you have an injection use disorder, you're 14 times more likely to die by, su by suicide. That's pretty shocking. If you have pain and a substance use disorder, you know, you have a high probability of having suicidal ideation, but also completing suicide. So this is an interesting study looking at ultra-low-dose buprenorphine. These were all patients that randomized, controlled, double-blind, placebo-trialed controls of low-dose um, um, buprenorphine. I think it was like four milligrams, two to four milligrams, in patients that were severely depressed and had active suicidal ideation. What they found at both two and four weeks, that there was a significant decrease in suicidal thoughts just with this one intervention. Because again, you're hitting the kappa receptor, which is the antidepressant, anti-suicide one. This is a bigger one. It's looking at 51 suicidal male inpatients who had DSM-5 criteria for both opioid use disorder and major depressive disorder. And they were randomized into three different groups, varying doses of buprenorphine, 32, 64, and 96. What they found on any of those dosings were highly significant in, a, in rapidly decreasing suicidal ideation. Pretty cool. I mean, so maybe we have a medication that can help with substance use disorder, depression, and also decreasing the risk of suicide. So the bottom line is 
Patients with chronic daily t pain typically would have significant comorbidities, which include depression, anxiety. A small group, 10%, have a substance use disorder. And they have increased risk of suicide. Patients with pain and concomitant uh, substance use disorders and OUD are particularly challenging. I mean, you think chronic pain patients are tough out of substance use disorder. Buprenorphine has the potential to be efficacious in managing pain, mood disorders, reducing the risk of relapse, and reducing the risk of unintentional and intentional suicide. Buprenorphine is a molecule for all seasons, but not without risk, and one should always keep that in mind. So thank you. If you have any questions, please let me know. Well, maybe we'll just, if anyone comes up, we'll come up here because it's, it's hard to hear. Thank you so much for...